This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jonas Attilus, MD, MPH, who is a psychiatry resident at the University of Minnesota, and Brendan Johnson, who is a third year going on fourth year medical student at the University of Minnesota Medical School. They're both part of the Social Medicine On Air team, a podcast where they explore the field of social medicine with healthcare practitioners, activists, and researchers. Social medicine hopes to work for a world of justice and health, especially for the most marginalized, and connects clinical care to the deeper causes of health and illness. Today, we talk about what social medicine is, what the bigger factors are that influence health, and what the root causes are for our mental health epidemic. We touch upon topics like immigration, racism, climate change, neoliberalism, economics, and much more. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. Now, on to the podcast. So, how did you both become interested in social medicine? Um, I, I don't know. I feel like I uh, I grew up in Haiti, so um, even though I grew up in Haiti, I didn't even understand the social factors. Uh, but one social factors that was uh, very obvious for me was poverty. Uh, but you know, at that moment, I I used to think that poverty was you know individual you know uh, cause and nothing systemic. But I felt like when I moved to Mexico and I could compare Haiti and Mexico, so I have some contrast. And not only I discover poverty, but I also understand there was you know other forces. Let's say immigration because I was a refugee there, and I realized there are other forces. Let's say um, homophobia because I, dis- I, I that was the first time I was in a school with people who are openly gay. Um, uh, so so like the, the social forces start getting you know become more obvious to me, and I was kind of like. Uh, I feel like the rotation where I understand them the most was in OBGYN uh, because I had a, a patient, she was kind of like 14. When I met her, she came back for her second uh, uh, pregnancy. Uh, and I and I was like, man, this is not normal. And the more I asked questions and the more I realized that, you know, there was poverty, there was low health literacy and and all that. And there were, I, I met uh, another patient in the OBGYN clinic also and and I realized all those people kind of like living on the same area. And I'm like, when I go on the map, I realize, oh, that's a poor area. You see what I mean? Like, uh, I still, I feel like a, a couple of things start kind of like clicking and you put them together and you say, oh, those are like social factors. But I would say like the main person who introduced me to like social medicine uh, is Michelle Moss. Uh, mm-hmm. Michelle Moss kind of like, you know, we travel to Haiti together and she will give me uh, us a case and she will ask us, uh, look for the, cause of the disease without mentioning, let's say, a biological reason. Um, and then after the course, I kind of like, that's the moment I understand racism because I didn't get it before that. Um, and then I moved to uh, uh, to 
uh, New Jersey, Rutgers uh, for his uh, public health degree. And then I feel like everything kind of clicked uh, together. And then by the time I get back to residency, now I'm kind of, I was kind of like, oh, social medicine and public health. Yeah. And, and uh, so Haiti was where Jonas and I met each other. And um, for those of you who will be listening, instead of seeing, seeing the Zoom that we're recording this on, we're sitting next to each other. We're now yeah. roommates, which is a, yeah. <laughs> a real blessing to me. But yeah. 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 So, so, so we met um, with this amazing course that, that you were just saying um, in Mirabelay, Haiti, in it was a 2018, uh, run by Michelle Morris and then some of the other folks through. Uh, social medicine consortium and equal health, and it was an amazing course that that took place. Uh, we were like two, two and a half, three weeks um, together in Haiti, and it was about half kind of American or international yeah. students, yeah. and then half Haitian students, and, and we were roommates there. Um, and then just like had these wonderful conversations uh, late into the night. Uh, which is really kind of the genesis of the podcast that that we started after that as as a way to continue those conversations. Um, but at least for me, that was an enormous moment in my own kind of like political education and and coming to understand what social medicine was. Uh, a really memorable time that we had was going into uh, the local hospital there, HUM Hospital uh, Universitaire of Mirabelay, and. Uh, we were, you know, uh, in pairs going around and were paired with a patient. And we were told, okay, so now, now it's time for you to take history of this patient. Um, but for those of you who uh, are, are in medical school or around the medical system, you know that, you know, you ask about history of the present illness, you ask about review of systems, everything's very medically focused, past medical history, surgical history, meds that you're on. But they said, okay, you can't ask about anything medical. The only thing that you can ask about is social history. So we spent an hour with this woman asking, you know, these 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 deep questions about how she had grown up, about um, the circumstances of like her life and her birth, and she she uh, was in a situation where she was essentially the only breadwinner for her entire family, many of which had become disabled through work accidents, um, and and it was impossible for them to visit her in the hospital. Um, so she really hadn't had any visitors, even though. Like the care, the medical care itself was free. So just this amazing conversation, it tied in with, you know, many other lectures and like site visits that we had gone to, um, learning about history of racism and colonialism in Haiti, but of course across the world. Um, and then going into like the current American hegemony and imperialism in the, in the way that even like American uh, money, like aid money, is is given as as tied aid so they'll like give money to a country and say but all of that money has to be spent on american businesses which essentially just sucks the money back into the american ecosystem and doesn't actually you know help the places that it's uh purporting to so so for me that was an enormous moment especially kind of coming from america um i'm originally from minnesota which is uh where i am now and had family members in the medical field and like knew from pretty early on that I wanted to pursue medicine as well. Um, and part of my own story was really a sense of like disappointment. And once I, once I got into medical school that, you know, I had, I had seen people who had been doing it so well and had been living these kind of like values of humanism, of justice, of honesty, of vulnerability. And then 
just had this strange feeling when I, when I got in there of saying, okay, it's an amazing thing to have the privilege of being able to work with people's most intimate moments and the human body is of course amazing. But like, we weren't talking about why, you know, why, what we're all going to die. Life is a terminal condition. How do you sit with somebody as they're dying? We weren't talking about the fact that, you know, 80 to 90% of the causes of death are structural, are, are genetic, are, are behavioral, are all these things that are beyond the like, quote unquote, biology, or the things that we are trained to really make any sort of intervention on. And yet at the same time, we were also being trained as part of our like class formation in medicine to be the ones who are always the decision makers, always the ones who are in the know, always the ones that other people wait for. You know, it's our time that's respected. It's not the patient's time or the other uh, staff time that's respected. Um, so, so inevitably it kind of breeds this myopic, uh, viewpoint where you think that, or you, you're taught to think that, you know, everything, um, and you're taught to think that you're really the person who should be making all the decisions. And this is just like totally out of touch with reality and the things that are actually, um, killing our patients for, for lack of a better term. So at least for me, a lot of, a lot of the work in social medicine has been, instructive in, in kind of saying, okay, we need to have, as uh, one of our guests on the podcast mentioned, medicine needs to be a form of, or like the most honest practice of medicine needs to be an elaborate form of class suicide. Um, and to say like, we need to disinvest ourselves of, in, in, in a sense, like compost um, in Donna Haraway's language and like reinvest in the communities that we're integrated in and kind of divest from the culture of uh, of performance, of achievement, of status that unfortunately is, is kind of like the, the mainstream culture in so much of the field. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, no, those, those were really great answers. I really appreciate it. It's always so interesting to me how people within the medical field find their way to social medicine because it's very, very rarely talked about. I mean, you talk about social determinants of health, but it's like, maybe one class out of my four years of medical school. <laughs> um, and then for me, it's, it's been like actually pretty frustrating, I think. Um, and I've especially been, I, in fourth year, you have a lot of time to do thinking <laughs> and to podcasting and, um, the one-on-one -on -one interactions, which I was going to ask y'all later, but I, I've, I want to ask you now is like, how do you think you can treat the social factors within the clinic? Because as physicians, it's very like one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, I um, I would say um, the gold never never is never if we if we think to one and one or one to one, uh, we we do our views um, to to what we can do. We, we we kind of like give away our own power, or we kind of like let go of all the influence we can have. So what I mean by that, usually when I see a patient, whatever you're telling me and whatever. Um, whatever the information or the data I'm, I'm, I'm taking from you, I feel like the, the data can be used at three different levels. The first level, if the patient was in front of me, we, have, we are having a conversation. After the conversation, what can we do together like for your, for your health? Uh, the second level is my colleague. How can the information I get can be transmitted to, the, to my colleague without mentioning the patient? but to influence all my colleagues uh, uh, think and all they, 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 they provide care. The third level is the policymakers, the, pe the people who 
uh, definitely take big decisions. Uh, uh, so those people, you have to use data, uh, you know, information that you collected, you know, throughout like, you know, your clinical practice to influence what they are going to say. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is because so much uh, uh, can be solved by you only by seeing the patient. So much, uh, uh, like if you only focus on, okay, what can I do now for the patient to solve, I don't know, mm-hmm. h- housing insecurity or food insecurity, uh, there's not much you can do, okay? But you can use the information that you have to advocate. You see what I mean? Like you can use the information that you have to power up the patient so they can advocate for themselves. You can you can use the information that you have instead of listening to a guy uh, with a PhD and economic, you can invite the patient to give you the talk, you know, like to explain what it's mean to live in poverty. You see what I mean? Like, like uh, uh, so... So there's so much we can do from our clinic, like from, uh, and I always say to people, even though you have a public health background or you have a social medicine background, never stop seeing patients because that's where, that's the greatest data. You mm-hmm. see what I mean? So you have to find a way to combine both and then you can create change on, on, on both dimension, you know, uh, on the clinical aspect, but also on the policy aspect. Mm-hmm. Because if we only think about, okay, what can I do now? We ju- you just give away your power which is on a bigger or structural level. Hmm. I, I don't know if you um, had heard, but last year there was a, a Dr. Jack Geiger who passed away and he started this Delta Health Center um, in the Mississippi Delta along with a lot of community advocates there. And they actually had a program of food prescription that they <laughs> that they did start, which is very interesting. So that's part of kind of the history of uh, social medicine and the um community-oriented primary care too. He was he was very involved in that. But yeah, I, I think on the question of like, how does the one-on-one care for patients interact with these larger structural factors or kind of structural fight? For me, they just end up um, informing each other. And I, I think like, if you have, if you kind of have eyes to see like the way that the structural forces um, impose on our patient's life, you know, I was recently on a shift in the emergency room and there was a patient who was in DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, because he couldn't afford his insulin. And so if, if you, you know, are able to start to narrate the story of like, how do we get to this point where insulin is, is actually like very expensive and people end up rationing their own care or being unable to access care uh, when the original patent on insulin was given away for $1. Uh, so, so how did it become this like money machine that people are, are dying um, from lack of. And so, so you can start to understand the, the reason that individual patients are, are suffering. And it, and, and on the flip side of that, like the individual patients, uh, start to inform and, and give context and give witness and give clarity to like the larger structural fights. And I've been thinking a lot about this over COVID as well. And like, how is it possible that so many, people across the world, but especially in the United States, seem to be very hesitant of vaccines, hesitant of medical care more broadly. And I wonder if it's almost because we have, uh, so we've like insulated that world so well, like behind the walls of the hospital. And obviously there's a lot of distress that goes and and healthcare workers um, are deeply suffering through the course of the pandemic. But in a way, it's it's almost like you need a webcam up in the corner of the ICU to show like, what is this disease actually doing? Right. And I feel the same way. Like we, 
those of us like in the healthcare field more broadly just have this amazing uh, point of view to see the way that suffering and death like actually happens. Like how are people actually dying? How are people actually living? What are the p- things that are actually influencing people's health? That's not something that's most people have access to. And we do. So I think by having this ability to care for people one-on-one, it also gives us a certain responsibility to like tell that story more broadly. Um, obviously not telling the story over our patients, but it's like with our patients and to the extent that people do listen to us, um, or we can help them to like hear these stories in a new way. Um, and, and there's also just the fact that again, maybe that's a little bit fatalist, but like, as I was saying before, life is a fatal condition and like, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. And it's the, the fight for justice is deeply worth it. And it's something I believe that all of us are called to, but at the same time, there's like just a deep dignity in taking care of people who are vulnerable and suffering. And even in a utopian world, that would still be there. And there's, there's a dignity to the work that I, I feel like very grateful to be part of. That's really interesting that you talk about looking behind the curtain in medicine. Uh, that's part of the reason why we started our TikTok and our podcasts, because a lot of people weren't seeing behind the curtains or d- weren't privy to seeing behind the curtains. So we really wanted to decentralize health information so that um, everyone had access to it. I didn't grow up uh, in a family that uh, was in medicine. And so I came in kind of blind into medical school. And um, there's a lot as we are immersed in this this medical field that we assume is common knowledge. And sometimes we forget uh, what the general public has access to and know, like, um, just entering medical school, I didn't even realize that there were side effects to aspirin. (laughs) Um, and so I try to keep that in the back of my mind. Um, like what is common knowledge and what, what information can people, um, benefit from and what can we decentralize in order to make things more accessible? So, Uh, You have had a lot of different topics on your Social Medicine on Air podcast, um, which is also a wonderful podcast. I I very highly recommend it to anyone listening. So what are you both most interested in, in the aspect of social medicine? Yeah, um, I I will say for now, uh, at least as of today, uh, I feel like the two main things uh, that are very interesting for me is race. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons is because, you know, uh, uh, when you're a black man in America, uh, you know, wh- when I, when I talk, you can feel an accent, you can perceive that, uh, I may not be American, uh, but you know, when I'm in the street or when I'm in the classroom, so I, I'm a black person. So I have to understand how the system see me and how I'm being mm-hmm. treated. I have to study that, uh, something I didn't have to study when I was in a country where 98% of us are black, you know? Um, so race become a very interesting thing for me to study, to understand and see how to navigate. Uh, and then the second thing that become very important to me is immigration. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, if you look at the ACs, you know, you don't see uh, uh, immigration as an adverse childhood, you know, effect uh, uh, because maybe the person will kind of like 
um, you know, widening those things were, were not a migrant himself. So migrant is not the center of the conversation. So I'm trying to understand uh, immigration status. So by immigration, also, I involve also migrant, asylum seeker, global health, all that is part of the uh, migration. And, you know, from, from ways in, in, in migration, uh, that are like the two main things that I'm very interested in right now you can see poverty around it, okay? You can see uh, uh, low health literacy around it. You can see uh, so much uh, from those two main uh, uh, things that I'm trying to, you know, uh, 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 understand the impact, uh, you know, in, in healthcare and especially in mental health right now and also in, in access to care uh, from a public health perspective. And then after that, I have other other thing that I'm interested to, but I would say those two things mm. are like the primary, uh, you know, primary thing that I'm, I'm kind of like focused my work on now. Mm-hmm. I think the two that have been on my mind the most recently have been uh, climate change, climate collapse, and then neoliberalism and economics. So for, for climate, there's an increasing number of, you know, terrible climate catastrophes every year. And I think this is something that young people like kind of intuitively get, but in the larger public, it obviously hasn't uh, kind of pervaded consciousness of, of what we're doing when we're living in the sense of like denial about, about reality. And like the, the way that, and I don't, you know, maybe need to go too much into like the details about where we are. Um, just in terms of like the climate, it's really, really bad. And it's kind of like worse than we're expecting. But I think the next decades on the planet will be marked by a lot of violence, a lot of climate migration, like species loss, desertification, which you're already seeing. Um, it's like re- truly terrible events that like pretty much none of us have have really experienced. Um in their in their full strength, even though climate change is already happening and it's already happening to those who are most vulnerable and in the most vulnerable places first. But this is also the nicest year weather-wise that we're going to have for the rest of our lives. Like it only gets worse. And there comes with that like a deep sense of despair, I think, for me, and a deep sense of grief about like what we're doing to Sister Earth, what we're doing to our brothers and sisters, like all across the planet. Um, especially because, you know, speaking from the United States, like it's kind of our carbon that's that's primarily driving so many of these climactic effects on people who have contributed the least to the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So this it's rehashing these same dynamics of colonialism, of development, of patriarchy, of capitalism, racism. These same dynamics are at play in the climate crisis as well. And the Lancet a few years ago, had came out with a report that was saying that um in which the w health or the who the world health organization also reaffirmed that climate change is like the single greatest threat to human health in the 21st century so what do we do with that that's a that's an enormous challenge and it's <laughs> it, it's something where i think those of us in medicine have not really grappled with this yet and to the extent that we have, I, I think that it's kind of been in these, you know, well-meaning, but uh, kind of, what's the word, like anemic response to like, you know, talking about 
climate change with patients in the exam room or something like if they have asthma saying this is related to the forest fire in California, which yes, that's true, but it also doesn't really mobilize the kind of like political response that we need, which in my reading of the situation is only going to come from like mass movements and civil resistance at this point and like shutting down climate infrastructure as well as, you know, the huge amount of economic political changes that are going to take place. So I think that those of us in medicine need to join that fight um, because it will influence our patients' lives and ourselves just so profoundly. I think the other one is neoliberalism and economics. For those who don't know, neoliberalism is this kind of like global, political, social, economic system that's uh, taken off over the last approximately 40 years since like Thatcher and Reagan. And it's essentially this sense of like enforced individualism. So in the United States, for example, it used to be the case that uh, public education was funded uh, by by taxes, by the state, by society at large. Um, but due to some policies, especially like during the Nixon and Reagan era, they saw that universities were a hotbed of like student unrest. And so they realized that by increasing debt on students, they this would essentially make them more quiet and less politically active because they had more to lose. So this coincided with a massive disinvestment from public education. And now it's extremely expensive. And I mean, those of us in medical school will be coming out with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And people all across the country are have similar stories of this, like enormous debt burdens. Um, but in the same thing, like in healthcare bills, like you're expected to pay your own bills and you're uh, expected in just like every sphere of society. I mean, even look at dating and like Tinder, things like this, um, or, or dating apps. Like it's this, it, everything's a commodity, everything's a market. And that's the only logic that we have to like relate to one another is this commodified market-based system where we end up treating each other as objects instead of as full human uh, beings with like subjectivity and dignity. So how can we resist the logic of neoliberalism in healthcare, I think is a huge topic. And unfortunately, even again, well-meaning changes like Obamacare ended up being a huge uh, subsidy to the insurance industry, which has only gotten more profitable in the United States since the passage of Obamacare. Um, and the insurance model of paying for an individual's health healthcare needs uh, is also, again, very individualistic. Instead of just like paying for what's needed, we have this whole like risk and benefit and, and the morality of like what you do with your health and, you know, you should pay for it. And if you don't pay for it, you're a bad person, which totally, of course, neglects things like poverty and the structural roots of poverty. So again, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I think that those are uh, some of the things that have been on my mind a lot and wondering about how those of us in healthcare can take part. Also, so Jonas and I have been involved in the podcast for quite a while, but we have an amazing team, uh, Layla Poetry Ragab and Sebastian, and they have also brought a ton of like wonderful focuses to the, to the group as well. Um, everything from uh, like gender justice, LGBTQ health, like international relations and like history, histories of social medicine in other countries. Um, and just like amazing, amazing perspectives. So these are just a few of our specific interests, but uh, thankfully we've been able to integrate their amazing voices too. So I just want to give them a shout out as well. It's kind of interesting too, because 
when you talk about your like our specific interests in social medicine, also everything is so interconnected. <laughs> like like right. you were saying, climate change and neoliberalism, and then the immigration issue is getting just so much worse with climate change in general. So both of you are either in psych or pursuing psych. So uh, what do you think are some of the major social factors that are leading to um, like our mental health epidemic? Oh, man. You, what is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. What what is not? <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah. What is not? Um, yeah. What is not? What is not? You know, like what is not? Like I everything. Like you know, when you look at mental uh, mental health disorders, you can look at you know mm. uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD. But that's a group of you know. Uh, 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 Group of, of sickness, but you also have, you know, bipolar and then and then uh, um, uh, schizophrenia. So even when you you know you bring like theory of biology, neuroscience, and everything, there's so much of the social factors that influence mental health <coughs> that uh, you you end up saying what is not mental health. You know what is not um, just looking at other uh, Ukraine uh, is happening. Or even other U.S. welcome Ukrainian and not black and brown at the border also affect your mental health, you know. And look at uh, President Biden put, you know, like State of Union when he said we're going to address mental health crisis in America, but not mentioning police violence. You cannot uh, uh, talk about mental health crisis in a country where black and brown people are being murdered, abused, you know. Uh, you know, police violence and not mentioning the police. You sort of mean like, so you end up asking yourself, what is not mental health? You sort of mean? And and I will encourage you to see my second piece because I go deep into that mental health aspect where I talk, you know, about uh, uh, a lot of things that because I experience them, I don't even with, uh, the patient doesn't have to explain too much to me to get it. Uh, and yesterday I, I, I was, uh, 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 I had a chance to talk about, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, the mental health impact of of, of uh, uh, the shooting, uh, the Buffalo shooting, you know, like, uh, uh, so what's the impact, you know, I talk about trauma, because there is a first type of trauma, let's say collective trauma among Black people. You sort of mean, like, the simple fact you see another Black person die uh, uh, at the end of the police or what, live in TV, you are being affected because, there's that collective trauma. But there's also the vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is when somebody explained to you something you didn't witness, but you 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 get so deep into it that you are experiencing the same symptoms. So, so those type of trauma, you see it more in therapists when the therapist listen to the patient. So the therapist end up having nightmares too. So that's when you don't have to be a Black person. You can be any anybody, but that also mean a black person can experience mm. uh, collective trauma and vicarious trauma too. You see what I mean? And then, you know, like there's papers out there that say uh, first episode psychosis can be, is associated with police violence or, 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 or police arrest. So so what is not mental health? You see what I mean? So, um, so that will be my question. Like everything, like even when I was a medical student, one of the first things my, my professor taught me in Mexico, they told me there is no physical pain without uh, emotional pain. And like, as soon as the person is in the hospital, there is a mental issue going on. Mm. You sort of mean like, you know, like, ju- like just taking the wall 
el papel de ser enfermo, the wall of, of, of being sick, there's a mental health mm. going on, experiencing doing that part because uh, uh, like everything is being affected. So, so there is no physical pain without emotional pain. So what is not mental health? That's the, the whole question. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even as you're, as you're speaking, my, my mind goes to this reality that we're just so much more interconnected than we think we're embodied like this whole old division between mind and body or soul and body, this old like dualism from Descartes and, and the way that that's like reinforced in our culture, it's just wrong and it's, it's violent and it's destructive. And like, not only are we integrated within ourselves with all the beauty and the pain, but also we're integrated with one another. Um, my class at the medical school tragically has had a number of student suicides in the last few years. And our school is not um, alone in that, of course. And even just look at the, uh, at, you know, college age students in the United States, just to take one example, the rates of kind of like garden variety, uh, anxiety and depression are just skyrocketing, right? This isn't biology. Like, DNA is not changing that fast or something like this. Same thing with death of despair in middle-aged people in the United States. Like even before COVID, the life expectancy in the United States was going down since 2014. And we're like the only country in terms of peer countries where that's a reality. So it, it just speaks to this sort of like deep pathos, this deep interconnection and like this deep violence that's taking place in our society and like the deep pain and the deep trauma um, and, and I think like we feel it, we, we feel it on some sort of like subconscious level. We feel it in our bodies. We feel like you were saying with, with trauma and vicarious trauma, we, 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 we bear one another's wounds in some yeah, way. Yeah, and like that, that is true at the level of like what we are and like what it means to be humans. But it's, but we also live in a world again, going back to neoliberalism in a world that forces us apart, right? So, so the very things that like, we, you know, we, we don't even, we don't create ourselves. The, the only reason that we know to speak is because our parents spoke to us when we were like zero to five years old, right? And we were in context with other people. We were in school. Like we're, we're like literally loved into being. Like you cannot become like a, a fully human human if you're not loved. And if we were to reorient our our world and like not only in just some sort of nice way of like being nicer to one another, although yes, but like, what would it mean if we, if we said, uh, you know, like the civil rights folks would say, and, um, Oh, what's his name? You can edit this part out. Cornell West. Yeah. He says that justice is what love looks like in public. Yeah. Right. So if we were able to reorient our society on the bonds of love and solidarity, I, I believe that, that would be the basis for like truly reducing human suffering. And, and I also believe that love and solidarity have to be the basis of medical practice and taking care of one another. So, so what we're trying to do in healthcare is analogous to what needs to happen in society as a whole. And that's not to say that, you know, we need to like medicalize all of society, God forbid, but that we need to say that, you know, the way that people are suffering mentally right now is, is, is a symptom. You know, it's not a personal failing. It's like, and you know, both Jonas and I, I think, have had lived experience with like mental health as well. And 
at least as I've reflected on on some of those experiences, it, it, it it's become increasingly clear to me like the way in which one person's suffering is like the whole world suffering, right? So just the general culture that we live in can't help but have a, a deep, profound effect on like the way we feel about ourselves and about the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, of course, in the context of, you know, all of the the colonialism, racism, homophobia, like and many other kind of specific forms of violence that we always need mm-hmm. to have in mind too. Yeah. And I actually grew up in a town of 1200 people and then went to Carleton, which is a small <laughs> liberal arts school. And then coming to New Orleans, I've always had a real sense of community. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's been a really good protective mechanism for my mental health because I've always felt really connected with the places that I've living that I'm living. But it's very, very unique to have that in the United States now or even the world. Um, and that's actually something interesting too, is that you were saying like all of these examples of like things that are going wrong in the world. And then that's always in my mind, this double-edged sword of social media and the internet and our ability to access this information because it's so like, I've become so much more educated on these issues that I wouldn't have had if I didn't have the internet. And so it allows me to be passionate and advocate for more things. But at the same time, everyone's bombarded with all of these issues over and over and over again, which I think really affects our mental health as well. Mm -hmm. In regards to these mental health issues, um, if you could change like one policy or one thing right now, what do you think could help start our trajectory towards healing I feel like people need to get paid uh, and and not, I feel like so much is related to our economic system, you know, poverty and all that. Like, like so much is related to people not being able to live, to receive a a good wage or or spend too much money on the very little money that they have, you know, too much money in housing when they can't even afford housing, too much money. uh, Like, like life should be that expensive. And and I and, and and I'm sure like if we didn't have to pay that much, if the cost of living was not that expensive for us, we will have plenty of time to just feel being human, to just sit sit uh, sit still, you know. Um, and so many things come with 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 money. Even like uh, I was talking with someone like even sexual liberation come first with economic liberation. You know, like the simple fact that. You have some people being, let's say, quote unquote, open nikwi or whatever. Um, often it's because it's not first in a place where they are economically liberated, so they don't care what you think about them because you know they, they like you know, rich mm-hmm. kid or whatever. Um, you know, that's create a first liberation. So people are around those people, even though they may have less money, they may be a little bit more. But but the issue the issue is whenever there's economic liberation, there's so much other liberation that come with it. So I feel like if there's one thing I will have to change to change people's mental health, it has to start by dismantling our economic system mm. and make it more human, more human centered, mm. not productivity, but mm. more human. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Have you, um, just really quick, because I do want to hear from Brendan as well. Have you heard of Dr. Kanari Webb? At all. She wrote Guardian of the Trees. Dr. Kanari Webb founded Health and Harmony because she had seen the devastation of rainforests in Borneo. 
Um, and she was realizing that in the town, a lot of people were illegally deforesting to pay for health care. So to protect the forest, she created a type of barter, bartering system with local folks so they didn't have to go out and deforest but could trade manure or seeds from organic farming or some other kind of good. So she used radical listening in order to find out what the people of the town actually wanted and needed and what it would take to both give more access to health care and to stop the deforestation. And she's created this model in other locations in the world. And it's just amazing because it really has helped to stop deforestation. So yeah, I recommend uh, looking up her book or looking at her work because she's really inspiring. And and I love that because it says that, I mean, how are we going to relate to one another? And she was able to, it sounds like in a small clinic, in a small way, change from a logic of, 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 commodity and of money as like the primary thing that is mediating the relationship between two people and then switch it to bonds of like reciprocity of, of things that are required for life, you know, of, of things that are locally made and things that um, actually stitch us together when we take part in this exchange. I think just building on everything that Jonah said, which I love, I would say I've been thinking a lot about community and the way that we're held in, in community. And especially if we're talking about mental health, like that's an extremely, when, when someone is having a mental health crisis or struggling with, with their mental health, I, it's obviously such a vulnerable time and such a, a time in which we need to be taken care of and a time when we need to be seen at our best and where People need to come around us. And, and again, it's like, you know, in the same way that we're like created by love, we're like recreated by love. And I think that we're, we are truly social beings. And, you know, an earlier generation of uh, mental health people in the United States, at least went for a model of institutionalization, which is kind of, you know, segregating people behind walls. Um, and then even in the whole story about deinstitutionalization in the sixties, uh, which Folks can read all about very interesting story, but that was kind of botched as well because we just took away the money as well. And, and that's contributed to, to many other issues. Um, but still, you know, we end up with a system in which many folks with severe and persistent mental health issues are still segregated, you know, and be it in group homes or homelessness. Right. And, and I think, um, a, a world that more beautifully supported those of us like with mental health challenges and um our patients and so on would be one in which we're like thickly held in bonds of community and beyond just like some sort of nicety but that that also means like changing the necessity for moving around for one's professional career like if you want to be quote-unquote successful you know you have to move every two to four years and this ends up stripping any long-term relationships and leaving the only way of relating is ones that again are based on money or that are based on quote-unquote success and prestige and everything becomes like very anonymous and, and gray and styrofoam and superficial. Um, and I, yeah, I would like to imagine ways in which uh, kind of a thicker communities can be places of, of flourishing and repair in life for everybody. And like integrating that as, as kind of the context for care and like the context in which we do mental health care more specifically, because I think, if we do mental health care as kind of like a quote unquote scientific clinical pursuit, 
if that's separated from communities of healing and support, like it's not going to be a very fruitful enterprise. Absolutely. Well, I've really appreciated um, both of your answers and your, your wisdom and thoughtfulness. And our final question that we ask all of our guests is to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Mm. I don't know. I would say the future is liberation. Mm. Um, yeah. The future is abundance. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you both, uh, Jonas and Brandon. Um, yeah, I, I really, really appreciate this conversation. It's always so great to connect with like, like-minded people in medicine. So, um, thank you for all that you're doing and, and thank you for coming and chatting with me on this podcast. Yeah, Thank, thank you, you thank for you inviting us. us, you know, and, 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 you know, people like you and, and the work you're doing bring hope, you know, mm-hmm. even though you don't see the, the amount of impact you're doing, like you can't imagine how many people will listen to you. And even like the amount of work you're doing, it might be free, but it's it's a, it's a work with a lot of impact, you know? And uh, thank you for existing on this present moment and for bringing those topic. They're extremely important for, you know, for our patients, for our world, and also for our society. And even like the future generation that we don't even meet yet, but we are paving a better way for them. Mm-hmm. So, so thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, likewise, that was very beautiful. said, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs>